Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Okay, well, we are in our study of the book of Revelation. And uh, tonight, we are going to look at a uh, probably much looked past uh, subject in the Revelation, talking about the water, talking about the sea. Father, we want to ask you tonight to give us clarity from the word about your purposes for the sea in the book of Revelation, what all you're doing there, intending for us to understand. We pray, God, that you would release to us understanding in Jesus' name. Well, tonight, book of Revelation, purposes of the sea. What we're going to do in this session is, yes, we're going to look at the obvious uh, fact that the book of Revelation talks about the largest body of water called the ocean, but uh, there's more to the term the sea in the book of Revelation than just uh, in reference to uh, the ocean. And uh, there's actually enough references in the book of Revelation for us to do a whole session on this, if you can believe that or not. There's 26 occasions in the book of Revelation that reference the sea. And uh, many times it's talking about the physical water, but many times it's not. And uh, what I want to give us here in just kind of our little introduction, the broadest sense, the varied uses of the term sea in the book of Revelation uh, range all the way from, yes, the physical body of water all the way to the expanse of the earth, humanity itself, the kingdom of God, even darkness. When you look at the subject of the sea in the book of Revelation, uh, it's a, actually a broader subject. It's, a, uh, uh, it's kind of a, a wide encompassing uh, theme. And uh, the idea being, uh, whether you're talking about the physical boundaries of the water, it's, it's massive, it's enormous, or you're talking about these uh, symbolic usages, the idea is that it's all-encompassing. It's, it's a very broad, uh, you know, wide-spanning, uh, you know, sort of a concept. And so uh, just in this intro, we'll look at a few of the instances that aren't talking about the water. Let's look here. First, we see that heaven has a sea of its own, of sorts. It's called the sea of glass like crystal, or a sea of glass mingled with fire, depending on the translation. <clears throat> Looking here at Revelation 4, verse 6. What I want to do in this session is I want us to connect the, uh, the purposes that the Lord has in uh, even having the subject of the sea be referenced so many times in the end time book. I mean, why is this so, uh, so many times referenced? 26 times is a good amount of literature uh, in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of subjects that we've done in this series that did not get referenced even half that many times. And so why is this subject so, uh, you know, uh, prolific throughout the, uh, the, the end time drama? And how does it relate to both the physical uh, sea and then also these other references? So here looking at the sea glass like uh, crystal, uh, Revelation 4 verse 6. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass 
clear as crystal, and in the center around the throne were the four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. So what is this sea of glass? We see that it's in front of the throne, but what's going on there? What's the purpose of this? Well, we find out in Revelation 15, verse 2, a little bit more about its purpose, its function. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have victory over the beast over his image and over the mark and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And what we see in this, uh, these two connected verses is now we understand the geography of the sea of glass like crystal is in front of the throne of God. But the function of this sea of glass is that the saints have got their worship instruments and they're standing on top of it. So this isn't a sea in the sense of its water. It's a sea in the sense of it goes on forever. So if you're standing on the seashore and you're looking out over the ocean, it just goes on into the horizon. That's the concept. But now we're talking about pavement. It's clear as crystal or clear as glass, but it's actually a giant assembly hall. It's an enormous gathering point for the saints. It says there in Revelation 15 too, that he sees on top of the sea or standing on top of it, he sees the, the, those that have had victory over the beast. Well, we're told in Revelation uh, chapter 7 that the number of the martyrs, the numbers that come out of the great tribulation, it's incalculable from all the different tribes and languages and tongues. So you're talking here about you would need something that could be described as a sea because you're talking about a couple billion, maybe three, who knows how many people are standing there in front of the throne. And in this passage, we see that they've got harps in their hands. They've got musical instruments. This is a massive worship gathering. This is going to be the greatest jam session of all time. And it's not going to happen once. Even folks like me are going to be armed with musical instruments. Ha ha to all of you. So a massive assembly hall, but it's described as heaven's sea of glass. Okay. Well, what else? The sand on the seashore. We see that reference a couple of times. And the picture there that Revelation has given us with this word picture of the seashore is to depict the infinite expanse of sand granules that you would find on the seashore. How, count them. How many are there? Just try. How deep do they go? How far does it go? How far out into the water do you go? How far up the beach do you go? How many miles that way? How many miles that way? The idea is this infinite expanse is the idea of the seashore. Because it's now not just the sea itself that's a big expanse. It's now the grains of sand that are on the seashore that now just go on forever in every direction. It's this wide expanse. And the comparison is made that the countless number of the number of, uh, of those that will follow Satan after his release is referenced here, as well as the dragon standing on the, uh, the shore of the sea or the seashore. So uh, how do we connect those two? Well, there's this allusion to the vastness of humanity. One, the vastness of humanity that the, uh, that the dragon is standing on the shore of, okay? With jurisdiction, with authority over the earth. But then also we see at the end of Revelation, after Satan is released from prison, it's interesting that the two times that the word seashore is used, it's both in reference to Satan. 
that at the end of uh, the thousand years, when Satan is released from prison, it says that those that will follow him will be like the sand on the seashore, the number uh, on the sand of the seashore. So here he is in Revelation at the beginning of the tribulation, and he's pictured as standing on that seashore. But at the end of Revelation, after the thousand-year reign, now it's he's uh, depicted as giving leadership to the number of this uh, granules of sand on the seashore. So just that we would kind of see that picture of the vastness of it. Well, that then leads us into the word picture of the sea being of the sea of humanity, the entirety of humanity. So let's look here at Revelation 13.1 and Revelation 12.12. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, ten crowns on its horns, and each of them had a blasphemous name. We'll look at Revelation 12.12. Similarly, gives us a twofold woe. It says, woe to the earth. That's actually talking about the physical earth. It's talking about the, the, the planet of which many times in uh, the, the word of God, we see the creation groaning. We see the, the depiction of the earth, almost like the earth has a personality. But then we also see a woe being given to the sea. And that is, I believe, in this scenario, because both Revelation 12 and 13, for those of you who are tracking with the storyline, that's one of the angelic asides. That's not the chronological storyline. That's one of the the time periods where John is having a vision, and he's getting an angelic aside, and he's seeing details that are fitting into the end time storyline. And he's seeing beasts and dragons, and he's seeing uh, all these uh, very symbolic pictures of of, uh, what's going on. And in this uh, occasion, we see Satan, or or rather we see the beast coming up out of the sea. And I believe that's reference to him coming up out of the sea of humanity. I don't think that he's actually going to come up out of the water. I guess he could. But I think it's it's coming up out of the sea of humanity because he is an embodiment of that generation. It says before he rises... Rebels will become completely wicked. The increase of wickedness will cause the love of most to grow cold. It's the most wicked generation that's ever been. He's coming up out of them as an answer to their heart cry. He is a part of the the response of, we want a savior, we want a king in our own image. And the most wicked generation that will ever have lived will see the Antichrist come up from the midst of it, embodying who it is, what it's about, and its desires. Also then it says, therefore you heavens who, and you who dwell in them, woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. Again, I think the, a piece of that picture, not the fullness of it, but a piece of that picture is woe to the physical earth and then woe to the sea of humanity that's, that's occurring in this uh, scenario. Because as the devil goes down, he's going to rage war against creation, and he's also then going to rage war against humanity. So again, this mysterious interweaving of the physical ocean and this uh, expanse of humanity, this, uh, you know, uh, unending uh, number. All right. Well, let's look here at part two. That was our introduction. Kind of a crazy introduction. Part two, God who made the sea. I just want to go back to Genesis one, and I want to talk about the physical body of water, the ocean. Genesis one, verse 10 He called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters and called seas, and God saw that it was good. 
I just want us to recognize just that the testimony of the Word of God, not that this is new information, but it's one of these things we kind of want to take into account as we read some of the crazy things God is going to do to the thing that He made that He called good. God made the sea. He looked at it. He said, good idea, self. Good job. The sea is good. He made the ocean, and he said it was good. It's important detail because the number of things that we're going to read here in just a moment are going to really challenge uh, God's um, strategies. <laughs> and that we're going to be looking at some things here that are like, wow, these are difficult things to uh, reconcile when God said that he made the water and called it good. Well, Revelation testifies to this same fact that God's the one that made the sea. What an interesting point to make in the middle of Revelation. Why go back to Genesis 1? Why does Revelation more or less quote Genesis 1 in the account of the sea being created? Look what it says here. Revelation 10 verse 6 and Revelation 14 7. I'm at the top of page 3 if you're uh, following the notes. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. And he said, there will be no more delay. This is heaven testifying a twofold uh, uh, statement or proclamation. One, God is the one who made the ocean. And two, somehow that's revelant in the end time drama. It's a reference to God's creation order, not just of all of creation, but in this particular sense, specifically of the water. He made the oceans. It says it in Revelation, 4, uh, Revelation 10. But it's also a statement that somehow the relevance of the oceans play a role in the end time drama. Otherwise, why reference it? Why would it even matter? Well, it does. Revelation 14, 7 says the same thing. Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. And so here we go again. We're, we're seeing this reference to God's creation of the ocean. Well, we'll circle back on this point uh, a little bit uh, later in this session, and then also, uh, I believe, next session. But I just want to point out a very real and interesting fact that the book of Revelation testifies to that just tells such a story. It, it is the opening line of an entire encyclopedia of books of information. And that is this. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. So it's in a time period after the millennial kingdom. A new heaven and a new earth happen afterwards. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And there was no longer any sea. There is coming a time where there will no longer be any sea. The thing that God said was good in Genesis 1, the thing that's going to have a whole lot of mess here in just a moment that we're going to look at, there is actually coming a future version of the earth that won't have an ocean. That is a mind-blowing, very life-altering thought process that, again, I believe is an invitation for more uh, revelation. All right, well, let's look at the creatures of the sea because there's so many references to this. Back to the Genesis 1 account. Verse 21. So God created the creatures of the sea and every living thing which uh, the water teems and that moves about in it. 
I just did a very little bit of homework. I'm sure many of you could be uh, more exacting in just a little bit of time with Google and whatever else. But it's estimated that there's 20,000 unique species of fish in the ocean. 20,000. And then an additional several hundred other types of sea animals that wouldn't be, uh, that would be mammals and other things, reptiles even. There's uh, several other hundred types of those. And then another 6,000 species of coral. So the sea has got a lot of things going on in it. And God is the one that uniquely designed each one of those. They did not happen by evolution. God created them. God created it right here. God created the creatures of the sea and everything living in it. So God takes responsibility for being the one who created every single living thing in the sea. Again, why make that point? Because Revelation talks a good bit about this exact point and then once again presents us with some very challenging thoughts about the God who created the ocean and every living thing in it that he likes. He looks at that fish and he goes, man, it's a good looking fish. I'm talking about that one with the thing, with the eye on the, and the light. It's scary looking. He looks at that stuff and he goes, man, I was clever. I came up with some really cool fish. He likes his creation, he said it's good, and yet the book of Revelation presents us with some real challenges. Every creature in the sea will cry out. Check this out, Revelation 5.13. Now this is after Jesus takes the scroll. Remember we spent a few weeks talking about Jesus, the, the lamb who is worthy. He's the lamb slain, he gets to take the scroll. When he takes that scroll, that's the end time script that now gets to be unraveled. And it says in Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, the following. Then, after Jesus has the scroll in hand, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying something. All the fish say something. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Listen, I don't know what that moment is going to be like, but I think we will be keenly aware of it. When every creature, land, sea, and heaven, cries out, it says, says to him, see, this isn't just poetry. It would mean absolutely nothing unless it means what it says. I mean, just think about that. It's God just making up lies. I mean, why, why does this statement exist unless it means what it says because it can't mean anything else and still be worth written? Like, so the alternative interpretation is you know life continues on exactly like before and this verse means nothing. I mean, it's the only other interpretation. There's, there's no way to interpret this except that it's going to happen. So when it happens, I believe we will be keenly aware of it. Now, what that will look, feel, smell like, I don't know. I can tell you this. When someone speaks in a language that I don't understand, I hear words, but I could not tell you what they're saying. What will it sound like when fish speak? I don't know. I don't know that I will have ears to be able to interpret it. No, actually I will. Whenever it happens, I'll just start quoting Revelation chapter 5, verse 13. And I will have the interpretation of the fish tongue. Okay? 
Every creature will cry out in the scene. It's just so interesting that God wants all of creation, including the blub blub under the water. Then the seas turned to blood. Revelation 8.8, 8, Revelation 16.3. We know the verses. First it's a third. Then it's all the blood, all the water turns to blood. But that's really gross. And when all the water turns to blood, all the creatures that just a minute ago cried out, you know, God, you're holy, you're worthy, they all die. That is so intense. That is really, really intense. Like the stain of human sin caused God to sacrifice his own son. That's bigger than all the fish dying. But all the fish are going to die too. As part of the stain of sin, all the fish that just cried out glory to God are going to die in the water. I gave you a couple of the verses, but you know them. They all died. Interestingly, just this is such a crazy idea. We touched on it, I think, in uh, either last session or the one before it. The sea is going to be repopulated after all the fish die. What a storyline. This is just crazy. God has so many layers to this end time drama. You could pick any one of them and make a movie series. I mean, every one of these is just the craziest thing ever. The water is going to be repopulated. Look what it says. This water towards, uh, I'm sorry, this water flows towards the eastern region and it goes down into the Araba where it enters the Dead Sea and it empties into the sea. The salty water becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There'll be large numbers of fish because this water flows there makes the salt water fresh so that the river water, so that where the river flows, everything will live. Now, we don't exactly know. Does it cause all the fish to come back to life? Does it bring new fish? Does it, we don't know exactly how that works. What we do know is after this happens, there's no more ocean salt water. It's now all fresh water. It turns all the water into fresh water. That is just such a interesting thing that it's a double whammy moment. One, all the blood turns to water again, but it doesn't just turn to water because it was salt water before, it turns to fresh water. And now teams of living creatures just swarm wherever it goes. That's just, whoa, God, you care about the sea. It, I just, a theory, and I don't have to be right about this. I don't have a dog in the hunt. But a theory of mine is it is actually the animals coming back to life as even part of the resurrection life, even as part of the, the glory of God touching the earth, even that renewal thought process. Uh, that's my thought. I could be wrong on that point. Whatever happens, it's going to be incredible. What we do know is the water will be fresh. Now, I throw this in there. This is another one of those, I don't have to be right, but it's in the word, so I wanted you to see it. A possibility of strange old creatures joining whatever's happening here, okay? Think dinosaurs. Psalm 104, 24 through 26 has never happened before. Psalm uh, 104, 24 through 26 has never occurred and 
Again, I just, I don't think that the Bible throws out silly ideas that have no meaning or relevance, that it's just for fairy tales. The Bible is prophecy. It's the word of God. So if Psalm 104 has never happened before, then in my understanding of how scripture works, Psalm 104 must still be future. Okay, but look what it says. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom, you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There will never be a time where the earth is more full of God's creatures than after the river of living water is flowing from the throne into the ocean and causing everything to live. There will never have been a time where that is more true. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. To see no, Leviathan is a sea monster. Just food for thought. It would make sense to me, again, just another one of those thoughts, it would make sense to me, that under Jesus' leadership, with the river of living water flowing into the ocean, we could get those dinos back. Just a thought. I could be wrong. But call me if I'm right. Okay, y'all, somebody look me up. All right. When the creatures are removed. So then, this just keeps getting crazier. So we, we had the water, and, and then it it was good and all the creatures were good and then they all turned to blood and then they all died and then the water came from the throne and made them all alive again and we got a Leviathan maybe and then at the end of the millennial kingdom Revelation 21.1 I saw new heaven and new earth and the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea bye bye fishies again this is so intriguing where do they go what happens to them I have some ideas, but one thing is sure, God made them twice, and he likes them. So he's got plans, there's purpose, he made them twice, or resuscitated, you know, the blubber whales, I don't know. All right, now let's go to part four, top of page five, the battle that rages on the physical sea. Just rough estimate, the earth is covered 71% in water. That's not all ocean, but it's mostly. It stands to reason with the earth, of which the earth is the battlefield for the end time drama. It's not like it's just one continent or just one island or just one nation. It's all tribes, tongues, people, nation. The book of Revelation continually mentions the sea and the ocean and everything that's in it. The whole earth is the battlefield for the end time drama, not just one area, one continent, one island. So it stands to reason that the battle that is raging between Satan and God on the earth is waged on the planet, not just on the land. 71% of the, of the earth is covered in water. So it makes sense that there's going to be significant components of the battle fought in relationship not only to the land, but also to the water. Well, we see plenty of reason to believe that straight on. First of all, Revelation 7, 1 through 3, promises that before any harm is caused to the ocean... The saints of God must be sealed first. But it specifically says the ocean. So it's talking here about the winds blowing on the land or the sea or any tree. 
These winds blowing, it's, a, it's an allusion to the end time judgments that are about to be released. And God says, listen, before I release my end time judgments, before those winds start blowing across the land and the sea, before that happens, we need to make sure that the saints of God are sealed first. So even the sealing of the saints is in relationship to the sea not allowing uh, any negative impact, any warfare from heaven's side of things happening to the ocean before the saints are sealed. That's just an interesting point because war is going to be fought on the ocean. The war between heaven and earth, the war between uh, uh, God and Satan, the war between Jesus and the Antichrist, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, it's not fought on the land. It's fought on the earth, of which 71% of its surface is water. So just another interesting kind of point there to take in. Revelation 16.3 tells us that the bowl of wrath, the second bowl, is poured out on the sea. Now, I want you to, again, I want to make sure that we got this. We've talked about this a bit extensively. And often, I think we think of this second bowl having blood in it. It doesn't say it has blood in it. It says it has wrath in it. And this second bowl of wrath is poured out on the ocean. This is battle. This is warfare. This is heaven striking 71%, if you will, of the earth's surface. This is the Lord striking. This is a massive blow. It is the, the bowl poured out onto the ocean, the wrath of God poured out onto the ocean. Well, part of the reason for that, we're told in uh, Revelation chapter 18, that there's this significant economic reality of what's running the earth that's keenly connected to the ship captains and all those that make their uh, wages, all that make their salary, their living on the ocean. Catching things, transporting things, tourism, all the different things related to ocean travel. It says this about the uh, about those that make their living that way. Revelation 18, 17 and then 18, 19. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. It's talking about the judgment of Babylon. But it talks about the judgment of Babylon in relationship to the ocean. Such great uh, wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off and cry. Revelation 18, verse 19. They will throw dust on their heads with weeping and mourning, and they'll cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, and all who had ships on the sea who became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she's been brought to ruin. There is this significant judgment that's taking place on the earth to judge the harlot Babylon system, to judge wickedness in the earth, and it's in relationship to judging the water. Because so much of mankind is reliant on the ocean, makes their, uh, uh, their living from the ocean. It, it's such a, a source of life and stability for the earth. God is going to judge the earth by judging the ocean. It's very interesting. All right. This angel in Revelation chapter 10, 2 through 5, and then also chapter 10, verse 8. And as we've covered this in a previous session, I'll just make, again, my... 
uh, thought process on this. I believe this is Jesus. And again, if I'm wrong on that point, that's okay. Whoever it is, he's described as a mighty angel holding a little scroll in his hand. And last time we saw Jesus in Revelation 5, he was said to be the only one who could open the scroll, and he's got the scroll in his hand. So I think it's the same picture here. I could be wrong. Revelation 10, 2 through 5, it says this. It says, this mighty angel was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. And in kind of one swift movement, he plants his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. A little bit later in that chapter, verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. A couple points here. One of the reasons I really believe this is Jesus, this is the transference of the forerunner ministry. That's what's happening here. And I don't think anybody's worthy to hand that off, but Jesus. Furthermore, no one was worthy to open that scroll, which now we see it's lying open. But in Revelation chapter 5, we saw there was a scroll. Maybe it's not the same one. I think it is. But we saw a scroll that was sealed and only Jesus could open it. Now we see this mighty angel holding it open. And what does he do with this open scroll? He hands it off to the church, which is exactly how Jesus runs his kingdom. Okay? So in this uh, situation, though, we see this twofold reality. This mighty angel, or Jesus, whichever it is, this mighty angel, 50% of his impact is on the ocean. And 50% of his impact is on the land. I think this is speaking of the forerunner message going out to all the islands, all the island nations, all the coastlands, all the, all the land and sea and everybody in between. The, this angel's point isn't to stand there and kind of straddle the water and the land. It's The point is to hand out that scroll. And that scroll has the end time revelation on it. And we see in chapter 10 and chapter 11 that it's the forerunner ministry. It's the two witnesses. All that stuff comes in connection to this open scroll. I believe it's the same scroll that was told to be opened up at the end of the age out of Daniel chapter 12. It said seal it up until the time of the end. I think all that's what's happening here. That's kind of the picture that I'm seeing. Well, anyway, whether it's Jesus or another angel or whatever, 50% of the impact of this scroll's openness and handoffness is in relationship to the land and 50% of it is in relationship to the ocean, okay? The mountains thrown into the sea or a mountain thrown into the sea. This is another act of war. This is a war move. This is an act of violence. One of the, uh, the trumpets includes something like a huge mountain, okay? We covered this in a previous session. Part I want us to see now is the impact that's made on the ocean. See, when you think about the the seals, trumpets, and bowls, you want to be thinking about God's calculated judgments, not just to the land, which only makes up 29% of the surface of the earth, but the other 71% as well, the ocean. And so here, this giant mountain is thrown to the earth, and it's got a thousand things wrong with it when it's thrown. And it's thrown into the sea, and it causes tremendous tidal waves, such as the earth has never seen before. I mean, it's going to be the most tremendous thing ever when that giant rock is thrown, and it might well even be taller than 
wherever it's thrown in the ocean. Because if you got a giant mountain, that could actually, in many cases, eclipse whatever you know uh, uh, water level depth it is. Okay, um, a giant mountain can easily be taller than many, 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 many places of the ocean. Okay, which means it would then be like a rock sticking up out of the water still. Okay, it's a judgment. It's thrown to the earth. It causes tremendous uh, uh, quake uh, or a wake in its uh, in its path. Okay, lastly, and then we'll break into groups. A large millstone thrown into the sea. Now, what we saw in Revelation 8.8 in the uh, trumpet that we just looked at, the second trumpet, this mountain is physically thrown into the water and it causes a great ruckus. But in Revelation chapter 18, verse 21, it's a symbolic judgment. Look at this. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and he threw it into the sea. And he said... With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. So it's a picture. It's a, it's a prophetic act. Did you know angels do prophetic acts? At least this one does. He throws a boulder into the ocean, but the picture is like what we've seen in Revelation 8.8 with the second trumpet when the real mountain, the huge boulder, is thrown into the sea. But this one is now an angel throwing it into the sea, and he's saying... It's like that for you, Babylon. You're going to be judged like that huge, that boulder being thrown in the ocean, gone, and just, you know, uh, such violence. That's how you're going to be judged and how you'll be ended. Okay. So now let's break into uh, groups. So the question is, uh, Ezekiel 47 is talking about the millennial temple and the, uh, the river is flowing out from the uh, throne and it's flowing out into the sea. So the question is, how can there be no sea? A thousand years difference. So it says after the millennium, there's no sea. Not during the millennium. During the millennium, there's a sea. So after the millennium, there's no sea. So just as a little follow-up point on that, because I was thinking about uh, this uh, earlier today, in preparation for next session, next session is all about the topography of the earth. Uh, we're gonna cover everything, everything that I can think of. And we're gonna spend a significant amount of time on the millennial uh, river coming out from under the throne, uh, even in its relationship to the fact that there's no sea. So we'll spend more time on that uh, in our next session, but just as a little snapshot, um, one way or the other, you have a problem. No matter what happens to the ocean, you have a problem that you have to fix in the millennium more water that wasn't on the planet a minute ago keeps coming. But that's never happened before. So in the history of the earth, there's been a fixed amount of water either in the atmosphere, under the earth, on the earth. But during the millennium, water coming from the throne, from the river of the water of life from heaven, keeps coming to the planet. So eventually the whole fishbowl would fill up and we'd all die. But that's not what happens. So there's some nuances there that we'll dive into a little bit uh, in our next uh, session. But uh, the shortest version of the question that was asked is uh, the Millennial Temple uh, describes the river flowing for the thousand years of which there is a, a sea for it to flow into for it to bring healing. But after the thousand years, there's no reason for healing anymore. There will no longer be there will no longer be any imperfection after the thousand years when the Father comes and rests on the earth after the final rebellion. The uh, Revelation chapter 
20 uh, rebellion of Satan that we alluded to you know, in one of the sessions. Uh, there's no longer going to be need for healing. There's no longer going to be need for fixing the ache. The Father will actually be physically here with us. So there's a bunch of things that transition at the end of the thousand year period of time. And it's one of the things that actually, I'm really glad you brought up this point. It's one of the things we want to make sure we understand. The thousand years is an age that is different than this current age and is different than the age after it. We're living in, there are rules right now for this age. The rules change in the next age during the thousand years. After the thousand years, the rules change again, and it's another age. And so we don't need to be, there's continuity, but it's not the same, each age is different. Each age serves different purposes. So great question, lots of little nuances there. Uh, Luke. Okay, well, uh, the, the statement, uh, uh, great question, let me repeat it. Uh, Psalm 104, the verse about Leviathan and uh, that, and we'll, we'll read it probably one more time to be helpful. Uh, why is this a future prophecy and not a historical event? Um, the perspective of the psalmist is that he it appears to be seeing it. And the psalmist is talking about this as a reality that is well known. It's not, he's not saying, you know, way back in time when things happened, he's describing as though it's a firsthand account, which is the exact frame of reference, the exact um, uh, perspective that the prophets always give when they're prophesying about the future. They always prophesy about it as though they're standing in the moment describing the scenario. So just a couple of the tell the uh, tip-offs uh, for me in this. How many are your works? Well, wait, wait, one more too. The layers of the scripture, the prophetic layers, I feel confident the Bible is still going to be powerful and effective in the word of God 10 ages from now. So it's eternal. So whatever level of revelation it is meant in a previous generation, it's going to mean it increasingly so in ways that we'll look at it with fresh eyes and go, oh my gosh. Uh, but just as a, a point of reference here for Psalm 104, how many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number. The language here, it doesn't say, these language points don't prove definitively this must be prophecy. But the way that the word of God interprets itself is you're looking for key phrases. And these key phrases are the same key phrases that we're reading in the Ezekiel passage that we were just looking at. And it's the same uh, key phrases that you know, we look at and others related to what happens when the water is restored after the healing waters come out from under the throne and touch the ocean. Uh, teaming with living creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro. So there you've got a very important uh, timing detail ships with humans on them while Leviathan's in the water swimming. Humans with monster. Same time period. Okay? So you've either got here the fact of Leviathan on the earth while humans were and that being real. And, and the humans weren't like 
a couple of them. It to and fro, the ships to and fro. It's talking about great commerce on the waters. You're talking about a, a, an evolved society that's operating with, you know, water commerce. It sounds actually a bit like the passage in Revelation chapter 18, talking about Babylon as established as those that are making their living on the sea, kind of a time period. So you don't want to be thinking about this as like, well, maybe that happened once and then the life then died the next day. You want to be thinking about a time period where humans are on the earth and they've got uh, dominion over the waters and they're to and froing lots and Leviathan being about. Um, so... You know, what What makes me think, all those things make me think that it's a future prophecy. Um, and there's there's lots of things that are layered in the scripture that are, there's little invitations for us to ask the Lord for more. And so as I went on this journey, because I was thinking about this 10 or so years ago, when I went on this journey, I was looking for, is there more to back up this theory? And the more that we study the scripture and look at things like the Ezekiel passage about the teeming living creatures and that kind of stuff, uh, it just seems there's more and more and more to make you kind of connect those dots. And just as a point of invitation for all of us related to studying the scripture, like there's no end to the mystery that's in there. There's no end to the livingness of the word. You, you want to be looking for ways that the Bible connects to itself helping the Bible be more alive and paint the story clearer, then we do want to be going, you know, oh, well, I just don't know if, if that's real or not. Fine. If you don't, that's okay. Go look at the related passages and see if those related passages help you believe more or believe less. But don't discount an idea because it's new to you. See, that's, I think we get into so much theological bankruptcy because we hear an idea that's new and immediately we go, I don't believe that. Based off of what Bible verse do we not believe that? Oh, I don't have a Bible verse. Well, that's where we want to we want to like know the word. But if there's Bible verses that paint the story bigger, help explain it more, we want to be giving ourselves to go, okay, well, maybe that is what that says. Maybe, maybe there really is no C. I mean, so great, great question. Andy. So Isaiah 9, of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. It's one of my favorite Bible verses in the whole word. Uh, in relationship to Jesus' rule, what happens when planet Earth has been completely conquered and settled and everything did? There's a big old universe out there. Possibly, just my take, just my thought, could be wrong, probably am. There's a whole universe out there without water. And it would make sense that the colonizing civilization, planet Earth, of which God has made the center of all things, Jesus came and died on planet Earth, it would make sense to me that in addition to the uh, Earth being populated, and what we'll look at in our next session is all the new rivers that pop up, because there's new rivers that actually are going to occur in the end times. And... Uh, and so river, it doesn't mean there's no water. It just means that there's not a sea. So for the sake of population of the earth, but I think possibly for the sake of exporting water. So that's just a thought. So, okay, uh, here. Okay. So uh, twofold question um, related to the literal nature of there is no sea. Uh, so let's just look at that passage. Uh, that's uh, Revelation chapter... 21, verse 1. Okay. Uh, now, this is after the millennium. So, after Jesus has reigned for a thousand years. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So, the question is, 
How is it possible for this to be symbolic of something as opposed to being literal? Sure, I suppose. I don't think there's any reason to believe that, however. So the two questions were, uh, is it possible that there's no longer any sea is now a reference back to there uh, not being any Gentile nations, which in uh, the session that we just did, we were talking about the beast coming up out of the sea, and in that sense, it was the, the Gentile nations. Um, so the, the question, well, all the nations, not just Gentile, Israel too. Um, but... The question is, uh, in that instance, is is it possible that it's referring to there not being any Gentile nations? I don't think so, because the context of the passage is dealing with the uh, the renovation of the earth and of heaven. There's there's a new reality that occurs. Remember, I was telling you the rules change each age. Well, when the millennium's over, a new age begins, and then in that new age, there is some drastic and massive touch point of heaven so that it would be called new, and of earth so that it would be called new. And so now you would then have to go literal, literal, symbolic. So in the middle of literal, you'd then have to throw in a symbolic, oh, well, these are literal points, but it's, it's literal heaven, it's literal earth, but it's symbolic sea. And that, that doesn't follow the, the mode of interpretation. When you're in a passage and you're, you're dealing with uh, symbolic uh, uh, details, you, you want to follow that through in the passage. They're either symbolic or, or they're literal. Um, okay, so that was the first one. Then the second scenario was uh, Pangea. Okay, so, so uh, what about if, if during the millennium all the land masses come back together and so there's no long, and if Israel's in the center, which I don't know that there's any reason that we have to believe that all the continents come back together, but pretend that they did for some reason. Uh, if they did, it would make sense that Israel's in the middle, but we're dealing with a lot of ifs here. Uh, if there was Israel in the middle, and if the, all the nations surrounded it, and it was just one landmass, and that made it easier for everybody to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles once a year, uh, then then this, the, the question is, well, then there would be no sea around Israel. Well, okay, in that particular scenario, there would be no sea around Israel, but it doesn't say there's no sea around Israel. It just referenced heaven and earth and no sea. So there would still be sea on the planet. And so that doesn't really resolve the, the, the nuances of it. So these are good questions, though. I mean, these, these are the kinds of things you want to think through. And I would even invite you to do this. If at any point, I mean, in every point, if you find my thoughts, you know, my answer is dissatisfactory, keep looking for Bible verses to make your idea smarter or to disprove your idea. But look to the Bible. Don't, I never stop learning. I think we learned that on a CBS special one time. Like, you want to keep growing in your understanding of the word. You want to keep growing in your understanding of, of uh, scripture and th how things connect. So don't settle in on an idea and that idea, it's, it's, this is right. Instead, keep looking to see if the word will inform that idea one way or the other. And where the word is challenging your thoughts, don't dig your feet in and go, no, I like my idea go, no, I like the Bible, and the Bible seems to be informing me this way or that way. So great questions. Okay, well, I think next week is going to be fun, too, uh, based off of where tonight started. So, Father, we ask you, in Jesus' name. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.